0: been exposed to people at work uh... who came down with it so they felt that they should not be here but fortunately we're not utterly quarantined we still have the phone system people can call in and still hear so uh, that's a good thing and i do appreciate that we're being very careful trying not to uh... spread it if we've been exposed uh, it does indeed Cause quite a bit of sickness and even death. Uh, At first it was thought it was more like a cold, and in many cases it is. Uh, Many many times people show hardly any symptoms. Maybe they have stronger immune systems or whatever, but uh, sometimes it is serious. So I think taking those quarantine scriptures in the Old Testament uh, seriously is a good thing, So while we miss having people here and able to fellowship directly, uh, at least the message can go on the phone and and get out, and that is key. We do have Bible study, New Moon Bible study coming up Tuesday evening at 7, Bible study Tuesday at 7, for. For those who are able or unexposed. (laughs) All right, we finished up Zechariah 3 last week and have come down to 4. Uh, Toward the end of chapter 3 there, we saw that God is going to do some signs and some wonders and bring forth his servant, the branch, which... Uh, clearly, as the rubber bell, if you put the scriptures together, and I think that we saw that pretty well last week. But Christ is the key to the whole thing uh, because He is the foundation stone, Ephesians 2:20, and other scriptures in the Bible show He is the, the stone of the corner, the headstone. Uh, so it will be He who does. The miracles and causes uh, people to be stirred to come to build in the temple, uh, both the spiritual and physical temples, because both need done. The spiritual, of course, needs done more than the physical. It was the spiritual temple that God blew apart when He blew worldwide apart, more than the physical, <clears throat> of course. The physical buildings and physical plant also went with it, ultimately, but it was the spiritual that God was most concerned about, and that's what he addresses there in Revelation 3 with the Laodicean attitude and approach of, of uh, nonchalant or taking God for granted or all the things that the Laodicean is. So that's what he addressed there uh, specifically as the big problem. And it is only those who repent of that the ten per cent that he stirs to come to build the physical temple and also to bring together uh, a people to set a spiritual example and It is our spiritual example to the world that is the most important physical temple <clears throat> is merely a representation of that which is greater so Yes, we will focus on the physical part that needs done, even as we focus on many physical things on this earth that need done, but we can't lose focus on the most important, and that is the kingdom of God. I read the Berean this morning, which was incredibly uh, insightful on that, showing that Christ As he came here and lived and died and resurrected was vital to God's purpose. But that was not the fulfillment of the purpose. The fulfillment is when we are changed and enter the kingdom of God. All these other things are merely something that leads up to that and make that possible. Christ coming to the earth and living a perfect life and dying and being resurrected was not the fulfilment of the purpose it's what made the purpose possible. Our purpose is the kingdom of God and eternal life and He used in that Berean the example of uh, coming out of the wilderness or I mean coming out of Egypt uh, the miracles that were shown. <coughs> Were leading to the goal. The uh, release was leading to the goal. The crossing of the Red Sea was incredible, but it wasn't the goal. Crossing the wilderness was a miracle, but it wasn't the goal. The goal was the promised land and was from the very beginning. Those were just steps along the way. Were they all important? Yes, they were. But the truly important was getting there. You want to go on a trip? Well, maybe you drive a ways, maybe you fly a ways, whatever. The flight isn't the goal, it's getting where you're going that's the goal. If the plane crashes, you never reach the goal. (laughs) Or if TSA turns you aside, or, you know, a lot of things can happen. But it's the intermediary steps that lead to it. I kind of thought about that a little bit after reading it. God creating us was truly important. We'd never reach the kingdom of God if we'd never been created and put in the Garden of Eden. But Garden of Eden wasn't the goal. It wasn't the purpose. God started there with us, and he's bringing us through various stages But we can never take our eye off the goal. And that's where Protestants make a mistake. Everything is Jesus, 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 and what he did when he was here. And they kind of forget that he's our high priest right now because the goal has not been attained. He's still the goal between between us and the Father as we keep working toward the ultimate goal. God is going to put the spiritual temple together. The physical temple is merely something there that's for the world to see and to be defiled and to help show where God's people are. But getting to a place of safety has never been the goal. Now, to some people, I think they made that kind of a goal. If they could get to the place of safety, they'd be okay. Maybe they didn't entirely forget that the kingdom was the goal, but they were just trying to get their ticket punched to get to a place of safety. No. place of safety, you know what? You're still human. You're still destined to die. It's not until you are part of the kingdom of God and given eternal life that the goal has been reached. So, we look at all the things that Christ did and that are recorded in the New Testament, and they're vital. And he is vital. But he was only himself working toward his goal for us to make us a part of his kingdom and to be his bride. So until that is accomplished, what he did before is not unimportant. It is not as important by comparison. It's where he's taking us. That is where we have to keep our eyes. Where is he taking us? And the Protestants tend to just Jesus, 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 and they don't know what the goal is. It's sort of a vague heaven or hell deal, but uh, they just talk about Jesus. And I was amazed when I told my sister one time, But nowhere does it say in the Bible to pray to Jesus. Well, she just took exception to that. I know it says in there to do that. I said, fine. Find it for me and send me a text and tell me where it is. (laughs) I never got one. It just isn't in there. But they pray to Jesus all the time. Well, she had been, like the rest of us in a way, for some time, kind of going different directions. And kind of picked up some of that Protestantism. And uh, she couldn't believe that it didn't say to pray to Jesus in there. What did he tell us? Pray the Father. Pray the Father. The Father is the key figure. He is right hand man to God. But he's still the Son and the Father is preeminent. So we pray through him to the Father. And we were never allowed to pray to the Father prior to his death and resurrection. Never allowed to. The Old Testament, they didn't uh, go into the Father. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year under very, very careful circumstances. But nobody else was allowed in there. Access to the Father was blocked. He had only access to Christ himself in that sense. And that was because he came to a few and dealt with them, Abraham and Moses and different ones. He opened the way by opening the veil of the temple. Now, David prayed, but David was one of the few that Christ truly revealed himself to. One of the few. The rest of them brought what? Animals. Sacrifices. That's what they brought for forgiveness. David understood the spiritual, and he would pray, and perhaps the Father heard those prayers. I won't say he didn't, but he didn't have direct access like we do through Christ to talk directly to the Father. And his prayers may have been more at that time to Christ than they were to the Father. Don't know exactly how that worked, but I do know that God made it very clear no one goes in to the Holy of Holies. Was not open to us until Christ died and the veil of the temple was rent in twain and allowed access to any and ever who would any any and everyone who would seek the Father. And that's where he told us to pray, was to the Father. Now maybe he was the God of the Old Testament in that sense, and David and Moses may have prayed to him. But that would have been the highest they could go, put it that way. That's as high as they could go, until he came and opened access to the Father. So Christ is the one who will be the chief foundation stone, and the seven eyes of the seven churches will look there at the end of uh, Zechariah 3. And into four, then, after he introduces Joshua there and shows that Zerubbabel will be introduced as the branch And we saw in Isaiah 52 that the two will see eye to eye when God turns it around and performs these miracles. That's the key, and that's the key that will begin to stir people to come. So he goes and gives us then more information in chapter 4. The angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. So, kind of like you're just waking up. And the message comes, and said to me, What do you see? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. Now this is the description you can find in Revelation 1. So where he's describing the seven churches and how Christ is the key figure, of course. Uh, but he uses this language there in, in Revelation 1, equating to Zechariah 3 and 4 and bringing it forward. And that's the key, is that these Old Testament prophecies are brought forward in the New Testament, and in particularly the book of Revelation to see what uh, the fulfillment is. Let's, let me go back there just for a moment so we see. <clears throat> I know you're familiar with it. Uh, Christ is described in verses 011 on down and uh, his being a flame of fire and his feet like pine brass. And he had in his right hand, verse 16, seven stars. And a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was in the, as the sun shines. And he goes down down to explain this, and what will be thereafter. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which you saw, are the seven churches. Then he goes on and gives a message to each of those churches, which is people, and of which all are existent here at the end time. So the seven eyes of Joshua 3 are a reference to what will be happening in the book of Revelation at the end time. Another thing to show that uh, the two witnesses of Zechariah and the remnant church Or an end-time prophecy, not something that's ancient history. Uh, And the two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side. So here is this picture he sees. Seven lamps on a candlestick of gold with a bowl. Well, the bowl is there to hold something, and the seven candlesticks represent the seven churches, as we just saw, or will and do at this point. And the candlestick, Christ supports all seven, is what he supports. He is involved with all seven, and that's what Zechariah, I mean, chapter three was talking about. So two olive trees by it doesn't explain it. And I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these? What what are you showing me? What does this mean? It was a picture, it was symbolic then. And he wanted to know what is the symbolism? What's the truth here? What what do these represent? And then the angel that talked with me answered and said to me, Know you not what these be? And I said, No, my lord. I I asked you, no, I don't know. You sure you don't know? No, I don't know. That's why I'm asking. All right, you sure you don't know, then I'll tell you. It's kind of the way the dialogue goes. Then he answered and spoke to me saying, this is the word of the eternal to Zerubbabel. So he introduces a subject here, which he gives more detail on as he goes down. But he wants it to make make it clear what the point is. And it starts here with Zerubbabel, whom he says in the end of the book of Haggai, he will make a signet to the nations, will go out to represent Christ. So Christ is ultimately the goal and the purpose here, but Zerubbabel is a type of him and goes out to represent him. So he starts the explanation with that. This is the word of the Eternal to Zerubbabel. That's what this vision is all about, in other words. Saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Eternal of hosts. Zerubbabel is a man. Zerubbabel is a man who represents Christ, but he's not Christ. And he is going to do great miracles and wonders, and that's going to be mentioned right here in this context. But we are not then to get our eyes on him as the answer or as the one to follow or worship or make an idol out of. Now, we made that mistake in many respects, in Worldwide Church of God, where Herbert Armstrong became almost the key figure. Now, he'd talk about God, but people admired him and set him on a pedestal in many respects, and they'd open films with him coming down the stairs on the airplane and things of that nature that I think put too much emphasis on the man. We needed more emphasis on the Father and the Son. And that's where we, in part, went astray. Too much adulation of a man. Now, was he a leader of God? Yes. Was he someone God placed there? Yes. Did he have his own faults and weaknesses? Yes. But he also had a purpose. And God was fulfilling that purpose, but sometimes... It's easy for us to begin to look too much to the man. So I think God is diffusing that somewhat here by what he's saying. I'm introducing Zerubbabel here, and he's a key figure in what I'm explaining to you and in this vision that you're seeing. However, it all goes back to God. It's not by human might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal of hosts. So we have to get that message that what is going to happen with these two men and with the remnant of the church is of God. And it isn't something men can build. It's nothing we can do. We can't perform miracles. We can't heal the sick. Only God can. And we've been frustrated now for some decades because he drew back from some of the healings that he was doing in the 50s and 60s, even the 70s, that I saw, witnessed, and felt in my own body. Now, he has done some since then, but not the same way he was back then. He's curtailed it a lot. And that was partly so we would get the message that it's him. He is the focus of the universe. And never forget that. He and the, the Father and the Son, I mean. God is. Not man. Not what man can do. Because of ourselves, we are absolutely helpless. And Christ himself, when he was on the earth, said, I am right now a human. And I can do nothing. It's the Father in heaven who does it. So he could tell them to pick up their bed and walk. But as a human, he couldn't cause the legs to heal. But the Father could. So he called on the Father, who was the ultimate spiritual power. Now, Christ has gone back to the throne, and he has the power... But it was through his sacrifice that that healing for us was made possible, both physically and spiritually. So he's emphasizing that here. By by my spirit, everything that's going to be done is the power of God. Never forget that. Yes, God's going to send us a couple leaders. He's going to send us a lot of people. And we should respect them for what God has called them to do, but worship God. He is the one who has the power. So he says, who are you, O great mountain? Great government uh, is the symbolism. Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. So we have people on this earth who are leaders of nations who think they're really something. And he says, before Zerubbabel, you're going to be knocked flat. And we can see, if you go back to Revelation 11, what the two witnesses are going to do to the nations of this world. And it's a very, very powerful witness that is going to be given. So he reminds us, it is by the power of God... But he's going to use human instruments. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, Grace to it. So it is through this Zerubbabel, this man, that Christ is going to reveal himself. He is the chief cornerstone, he is the headstone, the top. And this is the only place headstone is used in the Bible. Uh, other places call him the corner, Ephesians 2.20, uh, and other places. But he is the headstone, the main stone. And he will be revealed through Zerubbabel Crying, grace, grace. Well, who do we look to for Grace. To the Father and the Son. So, he's going to point to the Father and the Son and say the only way you can find grace is through them. Now, they're going to think they can find grace in life through the beast and the false prophet. They'll take the mark of the beast. They'll take the vaccine. And they'll look to that as the answer. The vaccine and whatever calls it, follows it. That's the beginning is the vaccine. And Satan has devised the vaccine to kill you. That's what he's done. And he's designed the beast and the false prophet as a false Zerubbabel and Joshua with lying signs and wonders. That's what he does. But the only way we can find grace is not through the beast and false prophet and Satan, but true grace, unmerited pardon, can come through Christ and the Father. And that's the message. See, these, the two witnesses are witnesses of what? That God is God. Witnesses to the world that God is God because The people of the world are going to be cut off, and most of them die in these end-time events. And the only answer they have is the grace of God, if they will but repent. But they won't. But that's why he says of the headstone, here's where your grace, your forgiveness, your opportunity comes. And there is no other. You worship the beast, you're going to die. You take his mark, identifying you with it, you're going to die. That's why they adopted this vaccine at the beginning, to begin to institute death upon us. And they intend, by various means, to kill us all. It's their goal of their purpose. Satan's goal and purpose. So he put this thing in motion. It's already pretty well destroyed our nation. And it's bringing down, little by little, the entire economy of the whole world. And going to kill millions and millions of people. So the only answer is the grace of God. Moreover, the word of the eternal came to me, saying... The hand of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. And you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me unto you. So what Zerubbabel does is going to be a witness that this angel brought Zechariah the message. A witness to whom Zechariah is long since dead but a witness to us and ultimately to the world that God did this. So this is someone who laid a foundation, and I think so far that has been a spiritual foundation. Not a physical building, but a spiritual foundation. Uh, And the foundation of the physical temple is yet to be laid. The ultimate one of Ezekiel 40 through 48, I'm speaking of here. So, God has been working with this Theravavell for a long time, getting him trained, properly coached, and ready uh, through a spiritual temple that he has been working on, a congregation, a church. And then he'll come to do the physical as well and to finish the spiritual. And we'll see that down here as we go on through this explanation. He's going to finish it, and you shall know that God is in this. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice, and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Eternal, which run to and fro through the whole earth. Revelation 1, we saw that the seven stars are the seven candlesticks of the churches. So, there will be representatives of all seven of the eras of the church, the attitudes of the church, here at the end. And these seven angels, seven stars, go to and fro through the whole earth. Well, what's God going to do? He says he's going to Bring his remnant from north, south, east, and west, from all over the earth. So these seven angels are going to be involved in helping gather up the remnant church. Because they are involved with each of those. So they have a responsibility to God to help get them here. And whatever means that is. Who's despised small things? Christ said, fear not little flock. And he has always started things small. Through one man, uh, generally, he has started things. Uh, Moses, for a good example. Now, he expanded it to the whole nation of Israel. But he started with one. And then he added Aaron, uh, two. And then it grew to everybody. So don't despise something because it's small. For they shall rejoice and see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now, we already read back here uh, at the first of this book that he's going to measure the church, measure Jerusalem. Uh, It has to be laid out and so on. Well, who's going to be in charge? The plummet will be in the hand of Zerubbabel. He's the primary and the key figure here. And the angels of God will work with him to bring that remnant to help him build. But he'll be in charge under Christ. Then answered I, still didn't understand something, and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick? And on the left side thereof. So you have this golden candlestick, and you had the bowl and seven lamps. But what are the olive branches? Which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves. So something is coming from these two olive trees into the bowl. And this is mysterious to Zechariah. And he answered me and said, Know you not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord, I don't know this either. (laughs) He keeps asking, Don't you know? No, I don't know. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones, or sons of oil is another way of putting that, that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, at this point in time, when Zechariah got this vision, this is the only reference in the Bible to these two as olive trees. Now, there are many, many, many references throughout the prophecies to the witnesses at the end and the church at the end. I mean, that's what the Bible's, the Old Testament prophecies are all about, is the end time church and its leadership what it's all about, and leading us toward the kingdom of God, of course, is the ultimate goal, as I said earlier. But there's no point of reference, is the thing here, that Zechariah could use, because the book of Revelation hadn't been written yet, and that's the only other place that they're mentioned. So, an explanation is given that these two anointed ones are ones that stand before God of the whole earth. And that's all the explanation he got. That's all he needed. Now, we are the ones who need to know more specifically, and if we go to Revelation 11, we see it explained there, because it was a prophecy for the end time, and no one back then could have understood it, because this didn't refer to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, or something that had been written prior to that, he had no point of preference to go to. And that wouldn't be written until the Apostle John later on. So obviously then, it couldn't be fully understood until now, until after the book of Revelation was written. Now let's go back there and compare Revelation 11 with this. Now starting starting in 10, it talks about verse 7 the angel sounding and the mystery of God being finished which refers to the first resurrection. Because that's when we truly understand the mystery of God. I do not understand, and you don't either, what it would be like to be a spirit being at this point. We only have physical references to deal with, and we can't comprehend the greatness of God. Now, we get hints of it in here, and he even tells us in Romans 1, You look at the creation that I have made, and that gives you a pretty good idea of what I am. What he is capable of doing. And that is one of the key things that I personally use, is Romans 1, to help me grasp and understand God. Because if he made this gorgeous earth we live on for us, and he made it compatible with us, by nature, we love trees and grass and flowers and animals and, and all the things of the blue sky and the stars and the sun and the moon and all the things that he's made for us. And I look at those that I can equate to because they appeal to my five senses. And I can say, wow, isn't that a beautiful sunset? God made that, and He's in it, and all the colors and everything that are there. And it's some sometimes sunset will almost take your breath; it's so beautiful. So you can look at that and say, "I want to be with the one who could do that forever." I want to be with the one who made a tree forever, a rose, a squirrel. Wow. A woman, <laughs> or a woman might say a man, a baby. God could make that. Wow, I want to be with someone who could make a baby forevermore. Well, God causes a man and a woman to get together to make one, but God is the one that instituted the whole process, made the male and female incapable of doing that, and then the product that he had in mind is that beautiful little baby. Well, you look at that and you think, wow. You know, as a parent, you look at a baby and it's almost uncomprehendable. And there it is, little bitty thing, red and ugly. But after a day or two or three, it gets prettier and prettier. And you marvel at it. And you marvel at it as it grows. Because it's something God did. And you can see God's creative capacities and ability in that little child. And you were one of those ones, You don't remember it very well, but you were. And now you're seeing it happen all over again. And you can stand in awe of it. But it isn't the baby to be in awe of. It's he who started that process and created that baby. Now, if he could do that. He ought to be worth being around, don't you think? So that's how we, in some way, comprehend him. But the mystery of God, of us being spirit, will be revealed at the first resurrection, because as you're transformed, you'll understand, finally, the fullness of what it really is. We only have a glass darkly in the meantime to look through, and hopefully it gets a little bit clearer as we understand him better. The voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open to the hand of the angel, which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. So I went to the angel and said, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it, eat it up, and it shall make your belly bitter, but it shall be in your mouth sweet as honey. That's why I took the little book, and I ate it, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. It didn't sit too well. Now, he's going to begin to describe here, Some horrible things that happened before, even at, and after the first resurrection. The story is beautiful. The mystery of God being revealed is beautiful. That's sweet to hear about. But the things that must happen before that occurs and just after to the world here is pretty bitter. And then he goes on to explain some of that in chapter 11, of why it is bitter. Because for this world, this society, these people, to come to understand God is going to require some terribly bitter, awful, astounding things. And the death of most. Because they simply will not repent. So you tell them, God says, well, I'm going to send some people to explain to you how life could be. And that sounds sweet. But then they're going to tell you who you have to worship in order to do it. And that makes you bitter. They, They want blessings. They want great things. But they don't want to go through God to get them. Mankind wants to go through science. They want to go through pills and the pharmaceuticals. They want to go through Satan. That's who they pattern their lives after is Satan, not God. So that must be where they want their answers. And God says the answers aren't there. Well, that's going to be a bitter pill for them, and they won't want to swallow it. And even for us, It sounds wonderful, the kingdom of God. But look what we've had to go through as humans already. Trial, trouble, tribulation, sickness, illness, death. Death isn't always a pleasant thing. Now, it can come very suddenly and not be too bad in that sense. But that isn't generally the way it works. If you're not cut off in an accident of some kind or whatever, sudden heart attack you go through a process of aging and aging and debilitation and you get worse and you get worse you can't see you can't hear you can't walk your bodily functions begin to quit and life just isn't all that wonderful you know what I mean? (laughs) it's worse and worse until you finally croak Well, God didn't make it to be pleasant. You see a newborn baby, and that's sweet. You see somebody sitting in a nursing home drooling down their chin with a vacant look in their eyes, and that's kind of bitter. is isn't much fun. So, he could be speaking of the whole process here, but he's more specifically, I think, talking about this end time, because that's what the book of Revelation covers, And what is about to happen. So, after that he says, you must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So Herbert Armstrong came here at the end. And he preached and he taught. And that was sweet to us as we learned. And we saw the kingdom of God as a possibility and we wanted to go toward that. And that's sweet. But all these terrible things didn't happen under Herbert Armstrong. They're going to happen under the remnant of the church and its leadership. And that's what John is being told. There was an end-time witness. Many were called. Now, a few are going to be chosen to do a pretty terrible job. Pretty terrible job. Let's read about that. Now, it's the two, though, that have the worst of the horror. The remnant, essentially, is going to be at Zion and in a place of safety and living the good life, if you will. They'll be blessed, honey, wine, and milk, without money, living in Edenic conditions, as an example to the world of how it could be for the whole world in the kingdom of God if they would just accept God. So, once the flight occurs, the church is going to be in wonderful circumstances. Healed, can see, can hear, can walk, can run, have good health, good food. Everything is going to be wonderful, like it was in the Garden of Eden. As an example to the world. It's the two that have to go and prophesy. And that's what John is saying here. Uh, It's kind of bitter. So in the 11 he says, there was given me a reed like a rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. Now that's what it says there in Zechariah. Give this young man a uh, measuring rod to go measure Jerusalem measure the altar, and them that worship therein. So everything has to be measured. Measuring Jerusalem there in Zechariah, measuring the temple. So Jerusalem and the temple get measured. And the altar, and them that worship therein. So this is speaking of the church. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. He only puts the measure on the temple, the altar, and them that worship there. Only the called out ones. Because they are the ones being judged. So that has to be measured. That's what Zechariah is talking about in measuring Jerusalem, which is the church, spiritual Jerusalem as well as the physical temple that has to be built. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall lay tread under foot for forty-two months. So this refers back to Daniel uh, nine, ten, and 11, that section through there, where the... Beast and the false prophet come in and defile the city which has just been built and the temple which has just been built. And like Antiochus Epiphanes butchered a hog on the altar, they're going to do unclean things there as well and defile it. And they will then be given 42 months to rule the earth under Satan. God's people will be in a place of safety in Zion and they'll be removed from this. But Satan and the Gentile nations will rule the earth for 42 months. Well, that 42 months is the exact same number that he gives the witnesses, uh 203 score days, uh 1103 score days, 1260. Uh Clothes and sackcloth. So 42 months and 1260 are the same amount of time, or three and a half years. All three are used in the book of Revelation to refer to this period of time. So, it is the church that is being measured in the meantime. Well, if you go back to Zechariah 4, we saw how the two witnesses would have the golden oil coming from them to feed the seven churches or the seven candlesticks. So God puts them there to catch them up to speed with things that have been revealed, things that have been understood, things they didn't know in worldwide. They have to be educated and spoken to and God's power, God's spirit, God's word be given to them. That's why they're the sons of oil or the oil or the spirit of God poured out through them for the church. That's why he says, don't deal with the Gentiles or those that are without in the court. Just those who worship at the altar and are part of the temple. God deals with them first. And then he has a time when they have to flee from the beast and false prophet, to a place of safety. And he's going to find out right there who values things on this earth and who is willing to run and leave everything behind to go and serve him. Matthew 24. Now that means that the two witnesses do not speak to the world or go to the world at first. Herbert Armstrong was told, I believe, in Matthew 28, to go to the world and make disciples. That was his commission, Matthew 28. The two witnesses are the ones who preach the gospel to the world as a witness, and then the end comes. But they don't start out going to the world. They are alive today, somewhere on this earth. They've been trained by God over a period of time to be ready for the job that has to be done when he adds his power and his spirit. So they're alive today, have to be, being trained. But they are not to go to the world, only to the church. And that's what Zechariah 4 shows. Them going to the church, all seven churches, and pouring out God's understanding and spirit to the churches. And then at some point, he will give power to them, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth represented disaster. Uh, Someone died, you put on sackcloth and mourned. If a prophet pointed out that you were disobeying God and he was angry, you put on sackcloth and ashes on your head. Because what it means is very sad, terrible times. So he will give the power to go where? To the world. Not to the church. They've already been there, already taught them, and will continue to, I think, on the Sabbaths. ...throughout the three and a half years. So he says, they'll prophesy that long during the time the Gentiles are treading underfoot the city. Then he explains who they are here, same as Zechariah 4. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. So that is almost a direct quote from Zechariah 4... And it's the only other place that it is mentioned that way. So, he's saying here, Zechariah 4 is being fulfilled through these two men at the end. Very clear. And if any man will hurt them, or has the intention of hurting them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. That's going to be quite a powerful witness right there. The God will cause fire to come out and devour anyone who would try to hurt them. It's not going to be allowed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, does this sound kind of like a bitter thing? Well, yeah. I mean, it's sweet to teach the church the things of God. But to go out and to actually have people die when they try to hurt you, or to cause plagues that will kill people, Turn their water into blood and they can't drink, that kind of turns your stomach. But understand, these people have been killing and eating babies. These people have in the products right over here in the grocery store that are made from babies, dead bodies, and they have a vaccine that they are giving people now that has dead babies in it. Every one of those vaccines, as I've read, has substances from aborted, murdered babies. You know, I can't under any circumstance imagine having my arm punched with baby materials. And it galls me, having read a list of companies that are using that in their foods. And I go in the grocery store, and I see all these products by all these big companies that are infused with flavors from dead babies. It's just sickening. That makes my belly bitter. It turns my stomach when I see crabs. And know that they're using this in all their products. Frito-Lay and their products are full of it. I could not take another bag of Fritos or potato chips off the shelf to say Kraft on them. Or I mean that say um, Frito-Lay. Can't do it. Turns my stomach to look at the bag. It's not sweet. It's bitter. What's going on? And the answer to it is bitter. These people will not listen. Period. So fire will come. No rain. And plagues will come. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. That's Satan the devil. He's the one that comes out of the bottomless pit. And shall overcome them and kill them. Now, you'll probably use the beast and the false prophet and their soldiers to do it. But Satan's the one behind it. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, he was crucified outside of what? Jerusalem. And that is going to be the holy city. And it has been the city where God dwelt. But at the time that this prophecy is fulfilled, it will be being ruled over by the beast and false prophet and Satan. So that which has been a holy city will be spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Because that's who will be occupying it, inhabiting it, and ruling it. And that's where the two will go to be killed, because that will be, at that time be the state of the seat of Satan's government. You see that I think we read it not too long ago in Daniel eleven, because it's all ties together. Verse 43 He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of the world. The tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, and he shall plant the tabernacle of the palace between the seas, former and hinder sea, on either side of Jerusalem, in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. So if they're going to take over Jerusalem between the former and hinder seas. We know where that is. We can see the seabeds there. They'll be full of water then. And that's where he'll rule, while while God's remnant will be in Zion. And it will certainly be abominable in Sodom and Egypt at that time. But God will clean it up. But there they will be killed. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three days and a half. A day can represent a year. They preached for three and a half years, so they lay there for three and a half days and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Tormenting people is not a sweet thing. It's a bitterness. But it has to be done. And after three and a half days, the Spirit of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon them, which saw them. You see there, when we first started reading this in chapter 11, it talks about the mystery of God being finished. <clears throat> so you have then three and a half years of horror, and at the end of that time, the two witnesses will be raised up, And rise to meet Christ as he comes down. And that will be the greatest witness of all. Their preaching was a witness against the world. But here, they're going to be standing there in the city and see the mystery of God finished. It won't just be you and me, if we're raised up, who see the mystery of God finished. And we're going through it, and it is revealed entirely to us at that point. It's also going to be a witness to those standing on the ground watching people go up in the air with the mystery of God and becoming God and seeing maybe the clothes drop off of those as they go up and they're transformed, (coughs) seeing them turn from physical to spirit. As they go up, what a witness that's going to be to the world down below. It won't be just at Jerusalem, because there are people who have died who will be part of that 144,000 in past ages. And wherever they are, shark poop on the ocean floor or somewhere in the rotted jungle of Africa or South America, wherever they died... Whoever's left alive is going to see them heading up to meet Christ. So they will see the mystery of God finished as well. And their enemies be told them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, nine, or one-tenth of the buildings. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand And the remnant were scared and gave glory to the God of heaven. That's what this has been all about, is that people will be scared and stand in awe and give glory to the God of heaven. This is the whole point of everything that's about to happen on this poor earth, is that they might ultimately give glory to God. Then they're all basically going to die in the seven last plagues. They'll come up in the second resurrection and be ready, humbled to worship God and give him glory. But that's been God's whole point all along, throughout all of this, is that man might give glory to God. And We've been called ahead of time to give great glory to God. And we need to make that a primary part of our worship of God is to honor Him, praise Him, glorify Him in our thoughts and our words as the one who has made all this that we're reading about possible and that we can be part of the mystery being finished. There are a lot of people going to join that. They're going to see the mystery finished in themselves in the millennium great white throne judgment whenever their change comes. But it's our job in the meantime to be a witness to the world of the glory of God. Now, in a very limited way, from Zion in a more obvious way, as God blesses his faithful remnant. That's a witness to the world of what God can do. And the two going out there and preaching repentance and grace to the headstone, to Christ, and the world not listening, but then they get scared to death when they rise from the streets of Jerusalem and have a change come over them in the spirit, just as the rest of the 144,000 come up as well. And a lot of them are buried around the real Jerusalem. A lot of those that Christ witnessed to on the earth, and that the apostles knew and preached to, were around Jerusalem. Probably the greatest uh, concentration of them will be from that area. So, when the two witnesses come out of the street, all those people that are buried around the original true Jerusalem are also going to come up. Now, isn't that what happened when Christ died? The graves were opened. When he was resurrected, those people came to life and walked back into the city. In this case, there'll be an earthquake. Same deal as it was back when he died and was resurrected. But this time, instead of them just walking back into the city, they're going to rise in the air and meet Christ. And that's where the greatest number will be, on the whole earth. Well, that's where the attention of the world will be, right? Because the whole earth is going to be partying over these two who have tormented them, being dead. Which means that they'll still have modern communication uh, TV and monitors and cell phones and all that will still be around. So the whole earth will be tuned in to this last battle. And the whole earth, basically, is going to see them killed. And they're going to send gifts to each other around the world. We finally got rid of them. And three and a half days later, they're not going to bury him. Oh, no, let's just let them rot here in the street, because we're partying over this. This is a big deal. So they'll party. And then, in three and a half days, they're going to see them begin to rise, and they're going to see begin to see all these other people buried around Jerusalem begin to rise. What an epic thing this will be. And it's not just those who standing in Jerusalem. It's those on their screens around the world that are going to see it too. So it's going to scare the whole world. Isn't that the whole point? Scare all mankind into giving glory to God. God's going to make this thing turn out right. And then he's going to send the seven last plagues and kill most of them. And a few will live into the millennium who have also seen all this and they're going to be ready to say, uh, you just put Satan away, did you? I think I'll worship you. God has this thing worked out so beautifully that those who survive the seven last plagues will be ready to worship, will have been humbled, scared, and go glory to God. And the ones who die... When they come up the first resurrection, I mean the uh, second resurrection, they'll have the same picture in mind that they saw on their screen before death came upon them. God has worked it out so beautifully. Give glory, give honor, give praise. In the way you live, in the way you talk, in the way you talk to God and think about God, We have been given so much ahead of time to inspire us to worship him with all our hearts. The world does not understand Romans 1. They're still doing what Paul said they would be doing. Homosexuality, perversion of every kind, goes on into cannibalism as the prophecies say it would. This stuff's stuff all going on. But you and I can read Romans 1 where he says, Don't go by all this perversion. Go look at nature and see me and worship and love me for what I'm doing, not for what this world is doing out here, killing babies and making food out of them. Look to me. Glorify me. Be horrified by what Satan and man is doing but worship me with all your heart. You know, that may be easier to do the more of this horror we see. It makes me pray harder when I read something that tells me products I've been buying that have babies in them that have been murdered. That's sickening. That makes my belly bitter. And then I look at the things, I get away from that. And I look at something God made, or the stars at night, and it's beautiful. That's sweet. It's this other stuff that's bitter. And God is going to use his church to stick their nose in it. And that's going to be a bitterness to those who have to preach it, because it's going to be a horrible thing to have to go through. But we can be separated from that. We can be in a place of safety where God blesses us in every way when he isn't the world as a witness to the world of what God can do. So you and I might look at that tree and that squirrel today, but the world can then look at us in a garden of Eden who are being blessed and they will have something to look to As a positive example of the witness of God's capacities. But they will not accept it until their nose is absolutely stuck in it. And they see the mystery of God finished before their very eyes. That will scare them, finally. Why does he say don't go to the world now? It wouldn't do a bit of good. Go to the church now. Because there's 10% there who will listen when they see the miracles, when they see Christ in it. Right now, you can look at any congregation anywhere on earth that is what is left of worldwide, and not many people want to go there. They don't see Christ in it in a powerful way. But he's going to move in one place and show his power. And his ability. And his strength. Not by man. Because none of us anywhere. Can impress the church. They can only be impressed by the power of God. And that's why he tells Zerubbabel and us. And whoever reads it. Not by man that any of this thing happens. It's by the power and the spirit of God. So the remnant will look and when they see God act, that's the little place that has been despised that they will begin to look because they see God in it. We need to see God in it. And we need to respond to God and worship Him and glorify and honor Him and turn to Him with our whole hearts because we have a great advantage over anyone else on this earth, and the remnant we'll have over the whole church. I hope we stand in awe, small and despised though we might be. I hope we stand in awe of what God has already given us and intends to give us soon.